0: Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. Please open up your copy of God's word this morning to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 20. So please turn to that passage, Matthew 28. We'll begin in verse 1 here in a second. While you're doing that, let me, let me ask you if anyone knows the story behind this famous painting. Does anyone recognize that painting? And if you do, do you know the story behind that painting? I know what you're thinking, it's not a very good painting, like he didn't finish. Well, that's part of the story. It was a painting that was uh, done by um, Benjamin, Benjamin West, I believe. and He's the one who painted a lot of the famous paintings from the Revolutionary War era. And this was uh, a depiction of the signing of the Treaty of Paris on September 3rd, 1783. And of course, who was at that treaty? It was the Uh, those representatives from the United States of America, the the fresh brand new nation called the United States of America, and the British. Now in reality the war, the Revolutionary War had all but ended really two years prior in October 19th of 1781 when the British fell to defeat at Yorktown Virginia. But the official victory happened in Paris with the signing of the treaty. Now the painting as you can see is sort of odd, it's missing part of it. It wasn't completed because the British delegation, in their pride, refused to pose for it. They weren't going to be in the picture. It was actually their way of sort of giving a symbolic refusal to accept the truth, to accept the outcome of the war, and to recognize to recognize the victor and to recognize the sovereignty of a new nation. But regardless of how the British delegation felt, the victory had been won. It was done. It was finished. Today, as we are studying this passage in Matthew 28, we see a a vivid picture, a word picture painted by Matthew of a much greater, much more decisive victory over an even deadlier enemy with a greater peace that was accomplished. Yet, like the British in Benjamin West's painting here, millions, if not billions, probably more billions of people are going to go on their way today refusing to recognize the victory, blind to it. Many will give a religious nod to Jesus on Easter, but never truly embrace the victory that Jesus accomplished on the cross, never truly experience the peace that was won, There was one for us on that greatest of victory days, the greatest V-Day that ever existed in mankind's history, Resurrection Sunday. So I want us to look at this word picture, this painting that Matthew gives us in Matthew 28. So please stand, if you would, as we read these words. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of reading God's infallible, inerrant word. Matthew 28, we're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read all the way down through the end of the chapter, verse 20. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you so. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts today. Give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak. Lord, I pray that everything we do uh, have already done, but what we do in the remainder of this service would be honoring to you, glorifying to Lord Jesus Christ. And, And Father, we just thank you. We thank you for these words, these amazing words, these powerful words of what happened on Resurrection Sunday so many years ago. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What a glorious victory that is pictured for us in this text. I have two main points that I want to draw from this text. So I'm going to go ahead and give them to you up front. So in your notes, there's a number one and a number two. I'm going to go ahead and give you the two points up front, and then we're going to go and fill in all the sub-points as we go, so on Resurrection Sunday, first of all, let us behold the victory of King Jesus. Let us behold the victory of King Jesus, and secondly, let us herald the victory of King Jesus. So the main two points that I see in this chapter: the beholding of the victory, and then the heralding of the victory. And you see this pattern, actually, not not just at the end where we have the Great Commission, but all, all throughout the, the text, there's this come and see, and then there's this go and tell. Come see, go tell. Come see, go tell. And that's the, really the main two themes that I see emerging from Matthew 28, beholding and heralding the victory of King Jesus. Now, God in His providence gave us four paintings of the resurrection, four paintings, four word pictures from four narrative accounts in the Gospels. And it's not my aim this morning to harmonize those for you. Um, You can find a lot of other help out there to help you do that. Um, We will do that in our sermon series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which we're going to pick back up next week, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's a chronological, verse-by-verse walk through the Gospels that harmonizes the Gospel accounts. And so we will eventually, of course this is near the end of that series, so probably about five years We will get to the end of seeing and savoring Jesus Christ and we'll harmonize the resurrection for you. But if you need need that before then, then there's other helps out there you can go to. But today I'm just going to give us a fly-by, an overview of this chapter 28 to behold these two things, to to, to see these two points and and four sub-points under the category of beholding the victory of Jesus. So here it is. Here's the first thing. We need to behold, let us behold the victory of King Jesus. And the first thing I want us to see or behold is that King Jesus has triumphantly restored what sin has broken. King Jesus has triumphantly restored what sin has broken. As with any war, uh, reconstruction, rebuilding, restoration has to take place after the victory has been won. And, And Jesus is bringing a restoration A recreation, if you will, with his victory, with his resurrection. And so it's a total transformation. It's a totally new creation that Jesus is ushering in. And we see it here in these very first words of chapter, I mean, of verse 1 of chapter 28. It says, now after the Sabbath, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. After the Sabbath, the timing of the resurrection wasn't done by happenstance it wasn't just a something that just happened to, to be what was the sabbath the sabbath as you know was the seventh day of the week the day of rest set aside by god that marked the end of creation you read about it in genesis 2 2 through 3 it was thereby designated set apart by god as a day for his people to rest and fellowship with him their creator Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made, made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Jews didn't, didn't in any way want to profane the Sabbath. So that is why Jesus' body was, was buried hastily on Friday, Friday evening, day one. And then on Saturday, the Sabbath, day two, the body lay there in the tomb without any attention to the normal burial rituals that would have been done to a body that had been buried. And so Sabbath passed, and then on Sunday, day three, the women went to do what they normally would have done a day earlier, they went to anoint the body with spices. So in God's design, this happened purposefully. This, God is communicating something to us by raising Jesus after the Sabbath. The old, the old covenant between God and his people had been completed and was passing away. The old created order was done. And so now something new a new covenant of God with his people was instituted and was now dawning onto the scene. We read that the dawn, it was the dawn of the first day of the week. It was the dawning of a new era. A new era was emerging, literally the dawning of a new creation with a new cre- or created order that Jesus himself had purchased. Jesus, when he rose from the grave on the first day of the week, began the process of new creation, of making all things new, a process He will complete when He returns and when we in Him enter into our final Sabbath rest promised to us in Hebrews chapter 4. We read that finalization of the new creation in Revelation 21. It says this, then I saw a new heavens and new earth for the first heavens and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. But now, before that final realization, but now, here we are along with the women on that first victory day morning, we are merely in the initial stages of the new creation. New creation begins in the hearts of those who are his in what we call new birth or regeneration. That's where the new creation begins. That's where the dawning of the new era begins. First 1 Peter 1, 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And new creation progressively takes effect in our life as our new birth leads to a new way of living Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. New creation has begun with giving us new hearts and now new desires to live for Christ in a new way. Christ rising on Sunday means that the believer's new birth, which produces new life, now gives us new dispositions, new affections, new desires. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. If you have been raised with Christ, you have been raised to a new way of living with totally new appetites. Oh friends, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are a believer, then new creation has begun And it's begun in you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And as I read earlier from Revelation 21, one day, yet to come, he will finalize the victory that has already been won. So we are in an era in between. We are in between the ages here. Kind of like uh, the time between the victory at Yorktown and the signing of the treaty at, the, at, uh, at Paris. We are in this in-between stage. The victory has already been won, but it hasn't been finally sealed. And we'll see that when Christ returns. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Philippians three twenty teaches us that he will transform our lowly body To be like his glorious body. So, in the resurrection accounts, we we see that Jesus has a body that does things that we can't do right now. We get a glimpse of what our final bodies will be like, our new bodies. And so, basically, our bodies will catch up with the new creation that's already begun in our hearts. That's the glory of the words after the Sabbath. After the Sabbath. In reality, it's not just humanity though that experiences new creation. Jesus said he's making all things new. The whole created order is being transformed. Romans 8:19 says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's that first fruits of the new creation, okay? We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the new creation, we're just in the first days of the new creation. It begins here in the heart. It causes us to long for those resurrected bodies. But the Bible says even creation is excited and longing for that day that Christ returns and makes all things new. So can we see creation groaning even in these texts today? If you look back at Matthew 27 verse 51, at Jesus' death, the earth shook and the rocks were split. And now in today's text, as if making some sort of cosmic proclamation of joy, the earth shakes again, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And with that earthquake brought about by this angelic visit, I want to take us to our next point this morning. King Jesus has powerfully removed the barrier to peace that sin created. So a victorious king, he would not only come in and restore what had been broken by war, he would also make terms of peace. So we see the angel. He rolls back the stone and he sits on it. I, I love that. I don't know why. I don't, it's, sometimes body language communicates something that, you know, words can't. It's almost as if this angel had a little bit of attitude. He rolls the stone back and says, I'm just going to take a seat. Just all in a day's work here. Verse 3. He says his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. This brightness is not inherent to the angel himself, but is the glory of God being refracted through this heavenly messenger. So, this was no precious moments angel. I don't know where we got the idea that angels were cute, pudgy toddlers with curly hair and feathery wings. I'm not sure how that happened. Or worse, There's even worse images out there. Believe me, you don't want to be touched by an angel. Every occurrence of angelic visitation in the Scriptures is one of breathtaking power that leaves the bravest of men totally incapacitated. Verse 4, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. These were not weak-kneed security guards for hire. These were not mall cops. These were Roman soldiers. They were accustomed to brutality. They were hardened by war. They were immune to what would rattle the average Joe. But with one peek at the power of God mediated through one of his angels, they go comatose. Behold the power of the resurrection. But the power isn't merely seen in the angels' earth-shaking stone-rolling It's even more powerfully seen in what the rolled away stone is communicating to us. First, let us ask why. Why was the stone rolled away? Let me tell you this. It wasn't to let Jesus out. Jesus had already risen. Jesus had no need for angelic help to get out. His glorified body had properties that allowed him to leave the room without any help. So why does the angel come and do this? He is doing it not to let Jesus out, but to let everyone else in let us in. He did it to show something. Namely that the tomb was empty. And that empty tomb was a proclamation by God. That the sacrifice of the pure and perfect Lamb of God was accepted by the Father. And thus a greater barrier. A greater barrier than a big old stone keeping people away from Jesus. The fountain of life. A greater barrier was removed. A great chasm between God and man has been closed. You see, this garden where Jesus' tomb was and this angel of the Lord should remind us of another garden and another angel. When Adam and Eve openly rebelled against God by taking hold of the forbidden fruit, they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And we read this in Genesis 3, verse 24. He, being God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of sin, man was separated from the fellowship of God. Man was at enmity with God, unable to attain eternal life. Adam's rebellion has been passed on to us, and so thus we are all born separated from God. The spiritual truth was vividly represented in the worship that the the people of Israel did. The Holy of Holies, you, you probably know this, but I'm just going to remind you, the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwelt in both the tabernacle and then the temple, was separated from the rest of the tabernacle or temple by what? By a gigantic veil. Exodus 26, verse 31 teaches us that it was a huge, heavy drape made of blue and purple and scarlet yarn with fine linen. And listen to what was embroidered on the, the curtain, the veil. It was to have a cherubim skillfully embroidered onto it. A cherubim, an angelic being standing guard to keep sinful men from God. Only once a year could the high priest enter with the blood of an atoning sacrifice. But with Jesus, the old has passed, the new has come. Turn your Bible back on one page to Matthew 27, verse 51. The old order has been set aside. The new has come. Verse 50 of Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. A divine ripping of the curtain. Not from the bottom to the top that man might be able to do. But from the top of that tall thing all the way down to the bottom. God ripped it in half. The cherubim was relieved of his duty. Oh friends, we were all with Adam, east of Eden, with a barrier between us and the eternal life, between us and the author of life, but now the angel that once was standing, bearing an instrument of war to keep us out, is sitting and inviting you to come in. Come in and see that the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus the Son of God, has been accepted, and thus the Holy of Holies has been opened up to sinners. Hebrews 2, 17 tells us that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. We read later in Hebrews that he was not only a high priest, that he himself was the atoning sacrifice, offering up his own blood. Hebrews 9 joins our first point about new creation with this second point about the barrier being removed. Hebrews 9, verse 11 But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, greater and more perfect, old gone, new come, greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. That's the old, okay? Not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 15. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. New creation, new covenant, the way has been opened. Jesus is the new Adam, not failing as the old Adam did, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then had his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ is returning to join our resurrected hearts with resurrected bodies. But how do we enter into this new creation and have this barrier removed? We do it by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my next point is simply this, and these next two points kind of go together. My next point is simply this, King Jesus has mercifully received those who turn from sin. He has mercifully received those who turn from their sin. A victorious king would not only restore things and offer terms of peace, he would also receive those who come and submit to him. Matthew 28, we see a stark contrast between the guards who are mightily defeated and the women who are mercifully received. There's a mighty defeat of the guards and a merciful reception of the women. It says in verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. There's the difference. These women were seeking Jesus yes their faith was weak it was terribly weak they had forgotten what Jesus had told them about rising again and here they were with a handful of spices expecting to see a dead body but they were acting out of deep deep love and compassion for their Lord they were still seeking after Jesus and God in his mercy lets them come in and opens their eyes to see the full truth of the Jesus whom they sought let me show you who it is you're seeking right now he's not here He's risen. And then the angel says, in a kind of a rebuke, as he said. It's a gentle rebuke. He's not coming on too hard, but he wants to remind them. You know, he did did say he was going to do this. As he said. And he says, come, come. It's an invitation, come, come in. Come and see. See the place where he lay. Now it's here that we see our pattern begin to emerge from this passage of Scripture. There's the come and see, and then in verse 7 he says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So how do they react? They don't say, wait a second, can we have a little more proof here? Uh, Are you certain, Mr. Angel Dude, because we we saw him dead. We actually saw him placed in this, this tomb. They didn't say, can you, can you explain to us how biologically this works? I mean, how can a, a, can a man experience three days of cellular breakdown and then all of a sudden be, be alive? No, they just, they believe. They're no longer failing to believe as they, they had that weak faith before. Now their faith has been strengthened they're no longer failing to listen. No, they turn from their doubt, and in faith they do exactly what the angel said. They go. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy they ran to tell the disciples. They're transformed now. Something new is happening in their hearts. They leave with a very different type of fear than they had at first. It has shifted from terror to awe. This is a happy fear. These are joyful jitters. So in that glad state of awe, they believe and They go. And in their joy, well, then their joy explodes as they come upon the object of their faith. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They took hold of his feet. This was no hallucination. Jesus was no spirit or ghost. It was him in the flesh. Jesus rose from the grave bodily. That's hugely important, friends. If Jesus did not physically, bodily rise, then there's no creation, there's no new body for us. But he did rise bodily, and these women were the first to see it and feel it. And their reaction is the only appropriate reaction. Humble submission and heartfelt worship. Taking hold of the feet is the submission. And then it says they worshiped him. Humble submission and heartfelt worship. This is what happens when you meet Jesus. Oh, friends, have you met Jesus? Have you met him? You say, well, I haven't seen him like they did. What do you mean, have I met him? Oh, friends, Jesus said to Doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed, happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is a way to meet Jesus and actually a more blessed way that has nothing to do with the eyes of this fallen body but with eyes of faith millions upon millions of people have in faith believed and met Jesus and the result is transformation from fearful, faithless fools to happy, submissive, affectionate worshipers joyful submission and red hot worship flows from the heart that has truly met Jesus show me a cold Worship her, and I'll show you someone that may not have actually met Jesus. True humility, submission to Christ, and red-hot worship of Christ, that flows out of a heart that has met Jesus. And that's what we see from these women. 1 Peter 1, verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friends, I've met Jesus, and I've never been the same. How about you? I can't explain it any more than I can explain how a dead body gets up and walks out of a sealed tomb. But I know it with more certainty, more solid certainty than that solid rock that the angel sat on. I know it because Jesus met me and changed me. Again, we see the pattern in verse 10 of this beholding and then heralding. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And we know from the parallel accounts that they did exactly what he told them to do. They obeyed immediately. They went and did exactly what he told them to do. You see, when you meet Jesus, you also joyfully and happily want to obey him. Show me someone who has no desire to obey Christ, to walk according to his word, to obey his commandments, and I will show you someone who has never truly met Jesus. What a contrast between the women and the guards. We see in verse 11 a kind of a parenthetical comment here. I think it's kind of amusing, to be honest with you. It says, while they were going, while the women were obeying, the guards were plotting, okay, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests what had taken place. There are some stories in the Bible where I really just wish I could be a fly on the wall. If there be a way when we get to heaven that the Lord can replay things from history for us, this is one of the scenes I want to see. These guys walking in and going, um, "Caiaphas, <clears throat> um, the, we had a had a bit of a problem at the at the tomb." Caiaphas going, "You're waking me up for this. What, what's the problem?" Well, the uh, the 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 stone, it's uh, well it's rolled away and and well there's no body. What? You beefy brawny Roman soldiers, explain this to me. Well, an angel came and sat on the stone. What? Verse 12 says, "And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel," that's talking about the 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 chief priest and the the, they had to have they had to call call a meeting. Bit of a panic here. Time for a board meeting. Come on, everybody, come on in. Business meeting. How many of you want to vote that we bribe these guys to be quiet? Got a majority. Good. Second majority. Good. So they go and they gave them sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. You understand what the trouble is for these guards. For a Roman soldier to to be derelict in his duty, not do what he had been told to do, the sentence was simply death. The fact that he was supposed to guard a dead man, your your job is to guard a dead man for three days. And Pilate finds that out, these guys are in trouble. And so they have this story. It wasn't a very good story when you think about it, although it's still circulated even to today. I mean, think about the story. I mean, one of these soldiers was walking along and one of his friends comes up and says, hey, I heard that, I heard that the tomb's empty. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You see, while we, were, while we were sleeping, his disciples came and stole it away. I can imagine the friend going, wait a second. If you were sleeping, then how do you know the disciples came and stole the body away? It wasn't a very good story. It wasn't very airtight. But that's what Satan does when he can't handle God's truth. He comes up with all sorts of lies that only a fool would believe. So, the Roman soldiers, they, they take the money, and they did as they were directed, and the story was spread to the Jews unto that day. One other thing you've got to realize is that the, in, Roman, in Matthew chapter 27, we read that Pilate told them to... Put the stone over the tomb and seal it. To seal the tomb was to put Pilate's own seal on the tomb. The Roman seal on that tomb. And when something was sealed, only the one who had authority to break it was allowed to break it. That's why in Revelation only Jesus can break the seal of the scroll, right? So only the one with authority to break it could break it. Only Pilate could give the order to break that seal. Well, what's, here's the great thing about this story. is one who has all authority in heaven and on earth broke the seal. And opened up that tomb so that everyone could see the death had no claim over him. The women believed, but they were not inherently better than the guards. For all men and women have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, being rich in mercy... Receive the women and let the guards remain in their sin. God is no respecter of persons. There were other Roman soldiers like Cornelius who would find God's mercy. There were other Jewish leaders like the Pharisee named Saul who would find God's mercy. These women were received because God chose to mercifully receive them. And so we see as the king receives them, our final point, King Jesus has graciously rescued those in bondage to sin. The last thing the king would do after restoring things and, and making terms of peace and accepting those who were coming back, he would also go and open up the prisons and release all the prisoners that belonged to him. They were received and rescued from the bondage of sin and self and Satan by faith in Jesus. New creation work of the resurrection has made sure that it's so. Colossians 2.12 teaches us that we have been buried with him in baptism in which you were Also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Listen to this, verse 13 of Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, there's the breaking of the bondage of of self, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. There's the breaking of the bondage of sin. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's the breaking of the bondage of Satan. Oh, friends, see what Christ has done in his resurrection. He has graciously rescued those in bondage to sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the natural response to a victory like this? Well, it should be the desire to let others know. Behold, the victory should be leading to the heralding of the victory. Beholding the victory should lead to the heralding of the victory. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in other words, the victory has been won. Go, therefore, in light of that victory, in the power of that victory, in the glory of that victory. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. What is baptism? It's a vivid and wonderful representation of being united to Christ both in his death and his resurrection. That's why the mode and the timing of baptism is hugely important baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Remember, those who have truly met Jesus, obey Jesus. And behold, I, I, the victorious King of kings, am with you always to the end of the age. In ancient times, the way that news spread of military victory was through heralds who ran from town to town to let everyone know. They would spread the good news, the gospel, that their king had been victorious, that the battle had been won, that times of peace were coming. To those of us in here who have met Jesus, you have come and you have seen and you have beheld. Now go and herald. Go and tell everyone of the truths that we've been celebrating today. But for those in here who are not believers, those who have not met the risen Christ, look around you. You are surrounded by witnesses who have met the risen Lord. Christ Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. Come and see and believe. Turn from your rebellion and believe. Embrace the truth that King Jesus has won. Do not be like the British in this picture, stubbornly refusing to recognize the victory, stubbornly refusing to see that he is making terms of peace. He is offering you peace. Our king is returning, friends, and when he completes the picture, when he fills it out in full, I pray that you will not be one of those who are absent, that you will not be one of the many who refuse to make peace with the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that King Jesus has secured the victory. And in this in-between time, when we have experienced the the first elements, the first fruits, the first taste of our resurrection, in that we've been given new hearts, that have new affections and new desires, and we we have a new ability to obey you. God, I pray that you would help us also see that you have also given us in this new heart. You should have given us, and we know you have given us according to your word, the ability and the desire to herald the truth. God, help us. Help us. Help us take hold of what you've already purchased for us, and that is the ability to be witnesses. Turn us into people who not only behold the resurrection on Easter Sunday, but herald it every day of the week. And Lord, for those in here who are not believers, I pray, Father, that they would be cut to the heart, that they would see what this great victory is that King Jesus has won And they will hear his offer of peace that he is holding out to them. That if they'll turn from their sin, if they'll confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, he is king. And believe in their hearts that God raised them from the dead. Oh, Father, they will be saved. So, Father, do your work now as we sing this closing song to our worship service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.